having used anger to overcome fear in the past, and that was the way out of, of getting past fear. What I'll also say is that there's a, a through line. There's a, a decision to pursue authenticity over um, periods of uncertainty, which means that I would rather be afraid of what's going to happen to me next than not doing something that I thought was worth my while in the time I've given in the body and life I have. Having been close to death on more than one occasion, I am very aware of how precious time is. And even if I'm wasting it, attempting to figure out what to do next, while I'm wasting it, I'm doing something else. This is Unconditioning, discovering the voice within, with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. This week, I have with me Carl Bressler. Carl is an actor, an investor, a producer, a manager, and a mentor with a wealth of experience stemming from his upbringing in Detroit and his career in Hollywood that has spanned decades. He carries so much wisdom from following his authenticity that I really wanted to bring him on the show because I feel like he has so much to share. I met Carl as I sat beside him at a John Patrick Shanley workshop. Carl has such a strong presence and charisma. I befriended him, and I've been fortunate to have had many conversations with Carl since then that go along the lines with the topic of this podcast, so it was kind of a no-brainer to bring him on. Carl lights up a room wherever he goes. He's a master networker. Everyone knows him, and I feel fortunate to call him my friend, so I'll just let you see or hear for yourself. And without further ado, here is Carl Bressler. Here's Whitney. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Hi, darling. <laughs> it's been so long. I know. Very long time. Human contact. I do remember it. Yeah. It's been a while, <laughs> but I do remember it. How are you feeling health-wise? You... Um, it's an interesting time. I'm, uh, I'm learning a lot about um, conditions of the lymph, the lymph glands, because uh, in my youth, I was in a lot of uh, what we called unsponsored street sports, which meant fighting. Mm -hmm. And um, in Detroit, and I grew up fighting with a bunch of guys. And... Um, I stopped doing that around the time I hit 19 because I was in a car accident and got hurt and had to recover. But then I ran distance for a long time afterwards. In fact, uh, on the beach here in California. And um, unfortunately, I seem to have injured the lymph system in, from going down from the hips. And so one leg, particularly my left leg, uh, the knee is very um, swollen and the uh, leg itself gets swollen. And this started when I was on flights. I noticed that I'd get off the flight and I'd have this swelling. Well, anyway, so it's gotten worse. So right now uh, I'm dealing with what they call lymphedemia and lymphorrhea. And wow. lymphedemia in, in short is when the uh, lymph uh, fluid can't get pushed back up by the lymph glands into your upper body. So it starts to expand your um, leg and you get what's either called a venous ulcer, which looks like um, a, sort of a, a wound inside your leg, but then on the outside, it looks like a burn. 
looks like a third degree burn. It's, it's weird how, because obviously I know I hadn't been burned. And then the other aspect, the lymphorrhea, is that the lymph glands literally seep out of your legs. So you're like leaking lymph fluid from your legs. Very sexy. Both of them oh, very sexy, yeah. of course. And uh, requiring me, right now, both my legs are wrapped in the compression wrap um, below the knee to the ankle. So um, having gotten over COVID and having gotten over pretty much all of the long-term the only thing I have left from COVID is a little bit of the uh, unusual exhaustions that show up in the middle of the day where I have to nap all of a sudden mm -hmm. um, and a little bit of the brain fog. But I've been taken off the blood thinner because the embolisms have gone away out of my lungs and my legs. So it's, it's just interesting dealing with aging and with getting older and with the ghosts of my youth coming back to haunt me. Um, because I've, you know, I haven't been in a fight since I was 19. I've been a good boy, you know, I mean, pretty much. And so how I'm doing is I'm, I'm learning that, that health becomes, um, as you get older, that it becomes more of a center point to your existence than just something you deal with once a year going to see a doctor or anything else. I think I've, I've my social life in this past year has mostly been at Cedars-Sinai, oh, wow. I would say. Yeah, so I've, I've met all sorts of doctors, some of which I didn't know existed. <clears throat> For instance, there are lymphatic surgeons. There are, and they're in, they're considered um, plastic surgeons um, because they're dealing with the lymph system, which is a very delicate system. But anyway, uh, I'm still walking and talking and doing my 10,000 plus steps a day. And, you know, so I'm all right. I'm, I'm uh, you know, it's just where you focus your attention. Excellent. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, wisdom within that, which is why I wanted to bring you on. Um, mm -hmm. Because I feel like you are probably one of the most authentic people that I know and grounded and centered within yourself. And so I usually ask my guests this question to start off just to see where you've come from. Do you remember a time, whether it be in Detroit or somewhere else, that you remember the first time that you realized that you had your own inner voice, your own thoughts that were not influenced by your environment or your parents or your surroundings, but you mm -hmm. realized this is me? Well, first to your comment about wisdom, thank you. I, I, I tend to think and not in any kind of false modesty way, that a lot of my wisdom comes from um, scar tissue. So um, experiences that I've had um, end up sounding like wisdom because you learn more from your failures than from your successes. That's maybe it's an axiom, but it's true. Anyway, back to the, your question about inner voice and uh, recognizing it. Uh, on one level, there was a book I read called The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler that had a paragraph in it about uh, the value of true greatness and, and why there was value in being truly great in yourself. And it, it, I'm paraphrasing terribly. It said basically, it's so that you understand those who lived before you, that you pick better company from those who live around you in your own time. And you might leave some residue after you're gone that will help guide those that are yet to come. And um, that voice going to that idea, um, I knew very early in Detroit that I was not supposed to be in Detroit and that my parents were nice people, 
my mom was an artist. My dad was a business guy who came out of the military. And um, they were lovely humans. And that they weren't um, in any way or shape uh, going to live the kind of life that I was going to live. And while they were products of their own time, and again, my mother being an artist, uh, I remember my father when I was 18 apologizing to me because he didn't know anybody in the music business to introduce me to. And that in his opinion, that fathers were responsible for helping their sons move forward by making those introductions. And my father had always said to me that nobody owed me anything. I mean, from the time I was 12, he started saying that nobody owed me anything and I owed myself everything. And so by the time I was 18, I'd heard that for six years. So I said to him, you know, you don't need to apologize. You set me up fine because you made it clear to me that anything that was gonna to happen to my life that was what I wanted to happen was gonna be by my own doing, my own effort. Um, and the old story about, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, and more currently heard, yeah, but then you have to have boots. And that's mm -hmm. always been a good point to me because I grew up in Detroit and I met a lot of people who didn't have boots, but were supposed to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So I saw the, uh, the break in the reality of uh, what was being sold versus what was possible. Uh, I guess the last thing I'll say about that is that um, I remember being 16 driving the Mustang that I had built. And I used to, usually drove it and raced it on a street called Woodward Avenue or Telegraph or Gratiot Avenue. Um, but that one time I drove it onto the lawn of a, um, a resource place where they had therapists. And I was 16 and I was very angry and about everything and uh had my long hair and black leather jacket and went in without an appointment and said i need to see someone now and this guy came out and said well i can give you 45 minutes and we talked for three hours and i basically said i don't understand why i'm here i don't understand mm -hmm. what i'm here to do i don't fit in detroit i'm not i don't give a shit about what everybody else seems to care about here i don't you know care about the same prejudices i'm not interested in that and I don't know how to get out of here. Mm. And um, I don't know so much that he said anything that, that helped me out in that session, but he was a mirror for me to remind myself that, again, if I was going to get out of Detroit, if I was going to have a life, that it was on me to do it and that I could be as angry as I wanted. But unless I converted my anger into effort and my effort into results, then I was going to end up just an angry guy. And I didn't want to do that. Yeah, turn your fire into fuel in a way. Yeah. So was music something that was part of your life growing up at home? How did you become interested? What inspired you to go after music? Uh, when I was 13, well, I should say when I was eight, this is a long story. When I was eight, I... Uh, I got on a horse on my birthday and I started crying because I didn't like the horse. I was bareback on the horse and the horse's hair is stuck into my legs and stuff. And so my parents got worried that because I was crying on the horse that I might be gay. Wow. This is when I was eight. So my mom wanted my dad to model male behavior for me. And so she insisted that he start taking me with him 
to Tuesday night bowling group. He was in a bowling league. And so every Tuesday night, he dutifully brought me with him to watch men bowl. And uh, I, I was really bored by that. And there was a, a pool hall in the bowling alley that was um, dark and, and pretty. And I would um, wander into the pool hall and sit there for hours until he was ready to go. And I would watch everybody play pool. And this went on for about three and a half, four years. I think I was probably 12 when the owner of the bowling alley pool hall said to my dad, you know, your kid always watches the, when you're here, always sits and watches in the pool area. Would you mind if I taught your kid how to play pool? This is the owner of the alley. And so I spent about a year getting lessons from him on uh, basic pool and basic English and all the stuff you do, shooting um, uh, what, we, what we used to call competition 14-1. And that was a gambling game in Detroit where basically you bet on every ball and you shot 14 balls into the pockets and then you reloaded and, and sometimes you'd play up to a, a 150 balls. So and, so, and depending on the stakes, you'd be playing for $5 a ball or you know the hitters would be playing for $50 a ball. And what also happened was that there were guys in the pool hall who would back players. And the deal with that was that they back players, if the players won, they split the earnings. If the players lost, the gambler, uh, the person making the bets took the loss, but it wasn't a good idea to be a player who lost a lot if you liked the way your hands looked because they were sometimes quite angry if you lost, especially if you had won and then lost. Anyway, about the time I was 13, um, I started playing for small money in the pool hall. And I, I didn't play for those backer guys until I was almost 15 because then by then I was a good enough player that I could be dependent on to beat a lot of people to win. And there was a band in the pool hall that used to watch me play. And they liked the way I talked to my opponents and they came up and told me that. And I said, you have long hair, get away from me. What are you doing? And they said, we'd like you to manage us. And I was like, I don't wanna manage you. I'm playing pool here. And they said, you know, we see you hitchhike here with your money in your ankle. And we all know that you're hitchhiking here and hitchhiking home. We have a car outside that we will lend you if you'll use it to go around to the different high schools and get us jobs. I mean, basically you gotta remember in that time in the, in the early seventies, the only thing you used to communicate with people was a telephone. There was nothing else. Um, there was no other, there was no, forget the internet. There was no fax machines, there was nothing. And so, I said, well, let me see the car. And I walked out with my pool cue because I'd learned that lesson to the outside. And they handed me the keys to a 1965 Pontiac Catalina, which I proceeded to drive around the block. And on the way around the block, the, the road coming back to the pool hall was gravel, was with potholes. And so when I applied the brakes, it was the car was low on hydraulic fluid and its brakes. So when I applied the brakes, they didn't work. And I'd never driven a car before. And I was by myself. And I'm driving this big Pontiac. And so I did what I'd seen in the movies where you downshift. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that on a Pontiac Catalina with a, a gear shift on the steering wheel, that below low on that Pontiac was reverse. So when I put it into, <laughs> it was reverse. The back end of the car swung out and I spun around. And I very, very, very luckily didn't kill anybody or myself or smash into a wall. 
and uh, I drove back, I, you know, I got back together and I drove the car back and parked it. And I got out of the car and I was in the music business because I said, okay, I'll do it. And every high school that I, I went to, I'd have to call the principal's office and make an appointment to, you know, get to show my band. And so in the parking lot would be the local band from that high school who had gotten the word that this guy was coming to sell another band to their school. And they'd be in the parking lot to tell me, this happened like six times where the, the local band was like, we're gonna kick your ass if you don't get out of here, this is our school. And I would laugh and say, I'm a fighter, you're musicians, I'll break your fingers. Um, uh, but if you're any good, if you have a demo reel, a demo tape, uh, and I like it, then I'll get you a job at the high school I just left and the next one I'm going to. And so by the time I was 17, I was working with 10 bands, um, seven of which were rock and roll bands and three of which were soul bands. So I had white bands and black bands in Detroit, and this is 1970, 71, 72. And I ended up, because I got into the music thing, I learned every band, I learned all the famous bands, I learned all the famous players. I knew their histories of who they played with before they played with who they played with now. Like you'd say, well, tell me the, the what about the drummer from Yes, Carl Palmer, or, or not from Yes, from Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And I'd say, well, he played with Atomic Rooster before he played. And they were like, oh, you know that. So you're, you're really paying attention. So I did get very much into it and um, made some really long lifelong friends from it. Um, and that was the fuel that got me out of Detroit because I went with the bands to Ohio, to, you know, Wisconsin, to Indiana, up into Canada. Uh, I hung out in uh, black neighborhoods where I was the only speck of white. One of the guys used to call me Danny. That was because he didn't know my name, but he, you know, he'd call me Danny for dandruff because I was the only speck of white in the room. <laughs> and, um, that was his nickname for me down at a club called the rooster tail. But uh, that's how I, I mean, I loved music once I started listening to it, but I, I thought my way of making money was gonna be shooting pool. And I stopped shooting pool completely about the time I hit 17, because I was making money for my 10 bands. I mean, imagine you're 17, you have your own answer, you have your own phone line in your parents' house, you have your own big box Vodafone answering machine, and you're making maybe 50 bucks per band per week times 10. So for not selling drugs or stolen, you know, video cassette players or whatever, not video cassette, but eight track players uh, in Detroit, I was making a lot of money and I was doing well. And uh, I was competing with some older, everybody was older than me mm -hmm. and some guys were bigger, but I'd, starting, I'd started to get bands to open on concerts and to, you know, for bigger bands. And I was starting to pursue clubs instead of high schools. And that's what happened. And then many other things happened. But anyway, that's how I got started. Yeah, it seems like your pool career also gave you some insight to strategic relationships and strategy, and which also moved over into the music business because they saw potential within you and how you were in your authentic self. And they wanted yeah, to, yeah. How, how odd. <laughs> I mean, definitely unmasked because on the pool table, it was, um, uh, there, there was no, uh, you, you couldn't bluff. You know, in Detroit, there's an expression, barkers and biters, which one are you? And um, you really couldn't be a barker on the pool table because if you didn't have it, uh, you, you, there was no, it wasn't like a card game where you can bluff somebody out because 
players were players and that's what they did. And uh, so these guys saw me play a lot and they knew that um, I meant it when I, when I got to the table and whatever I said to my opponents, which I don't remember these days, but mm -hmm. whatever it was, it sparked to them to believe that I could sell them. Mm -hmm. So. Was there a point where you realized you could use your anger to your advantage rather than have it uh, keep you stuck? Yeah, the, um, there's two very clear periods. There's the 11-year-old to, to almost 15-year-old where I was the football, where I was the little guy with no older brother and no cousins. So I got in a lot of fights and I lost a lot of fights because everybody was bigger than me some older than me and um uh i was i got uh and i had a father who had been a boxer so i'd go home and his response would be go back out and fight him again and i'd be but they beat me up and he'd say yeah and they'll keep beating you up until you beat them up so you know i'll teach you a couple of things but get out there and do it and i you know i had that that's what i came home to so that was like i had to go back out you know and uh, most of the time in that early period, it was to no avail. I didn't come back victorious. I came back bloodier, but I didn't give up. And uh, then I started exercising and doing push-ups and sit-ups. And then finally my father said, okay, I'm gonna teach you how to throw a punch from the ground, uh, from the ground up. And so instead of me throwing jabs at people, all of a sudden I was throwing these shots that literally, you know, I could knock someone off their feet and I was 15. Mm -hmm. And um, from 15 to, 19, um, whenever I got in a fight, I won. Uh, I think that's pretty much true. I don't, even with guys who are bigger than me and much bigger than me. And, but it was the same thing like shooting cool. I was definitely angry, but my father being a boxer taught me to channel the anger into results. So the result was the other guy went down. The only difference was sad, sad to say, was that in my generation in Detroit, you had to do what now they do in the MMA fights and stuff. In my dad's day, when, when he would get in a fight, knock someone down, he'd help them up. And in my day, I tried that. The guy, you know, basically came back behind me and hit me with a board in the back of my head and knocked mm -hmm. me down. Uh, so I learned that once, if you're in a fight and you knock in, in your fighting, that you had to keep them down, that you couldn't just knock them down. So, you know, that was a mess. That was a, that was a mess. And, and, um, that was a great place for anger to come out, but the result was, you know, very swollen hands and cut hands and, um, you know, the knuckles have gone down over the years, but the, um, the last time that I, I guess I used it was that when I, many, many years later, I'd been acting for seven years on stage. And um, I wasn't getting the results I wanted. And I was in play after play after play after play. And someone offered me a job for a couple of weeks to be a, an assistant at an agency that represented technical people. And she was gone for the two weeks. I was just supposed to answer her phone. And two video companies, music video companies, called up asking about two of the cinematographers that she represented if they're available for music videos and saying that if, um, they were available, they wanted to hire them in the next 24 hours. And I wasn't supposed to do anything, but you know, answer the phone and take messages. And I wasn't even supposed to call the client and say, you have this offer, are you interested? But that 
didn't make sense to me. And I, I had a bit of anger toward producers anyway, because of how I've been treated the last seven years. And so I called both camera people and said, do you want this job? Um, and they said, why are you calling me? You're an actor. And I said, yes, I'm an actor, but I'm your agent for this week. And uh, tell me how much do you make? Tell me how many times you've worked with these people? Do they pay anybody else more? Are you considered top in your field? Or are you in the middle? Is there anything for overtime? I mean, I basically asked 20 questions to understand the environment that these mm -hmm. people worked and lived in. And I went back to the producers and I negotiated and got them more than they'd made before. And when she came back, she was furious. She was like, I told you just to answer the phone and take messages. And I said, well, they, they said they were gonna hire somebody else if they didn't hear back in 24 hours. And you said not to call you. So I didn't want them to lose the job. I know what it's like to be an actor and not get the job because your agent doesn't deal. So, and then she said, and they don't make this much. You got the numbers wrong. And I said, no, they do now. And she was stunned and she ended up, but the, she ended up offering me a job and all sorts of things came out of that. But what, what that was, was that was my anger overcoming my fear because my fear was, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But my anger was, you're trying to treat this guy like a piece of shit and I'm not happen because it's happened to me and I didn't like it. So, so yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's been a million things where, you know, little bits of it show up because you get angry at someone treating you wrong or someone you care about wrong or applause wrong and you go in to fix it. Well, it seems that you've learned to navigate it and use it to your advantage um, and use your skill set that you learned in the pool hall all the way into every I, mean, I want to be clear on that, though. There's yeah. a price you pay. There's a price yeah. you pay. If anger is your fuel, you will eventually eventually pay the piper for that. In my case, it's high blood pressure, mm. which hit me around 25. And so I've dealt with that for you know decades now with medication and other stuff and meditation. But I was a very angry young guy. I mean, I was, um, uh, and even though I, I was articulate, probably um, for, what, for, for whatever reasons, my mom, whatever, the art side, but, and I read a tremendous amount of science fiction books. So I had a crazy ass vocabulary, but um, you know, my dad was very clear that, that always negotiate, always talk, Always work it out any way you can. Always say to someone, can I buy you a beer or whatever? But if you can't, never throw the second punch. Because the second punch is the reaction to getting hit by the first punch. And by then you're already at a disadvantage. So interesting lessons. My dad was an army vet. And there's amazing stories of that in World War II where he got assigned black troops and uh, how he went over to introduce himself to the troops before they were formally introduced to him as their captain. Um, he went over and sparred with them on the black side of the camp because the camps were segregated in World War II. And he was aware, as his friends had told him, that a lot of the white officers that were being assigned to the black troops were getting mysteriously shot. And they were getting shot because the black troops were being given the worst assignments and being put in harm's way. And the white officers, many of them, were not experienced enough to protect their men. And the black troops knew this. Mm -hmm. So my dad went over and sparred with a couple guys and boxed them. And he'd taken his stripes off and his gun off and all that. And he knocked both guys to the ground and he helped them both up, like I said earlier. But anyway, when it came time when the next week when he was brought back over 
and introduced to everybody. They all remembered him because he had been over there boxing and they all followed him wherever they, he said we're going. And many of those men came up to visit him into the 70s, you know, mid 70s. And I would meet these guys that he had served with and they'd show me pictures of them together in the 40s in Belgium, in France, in Germany, fighting. So, you know, again, with that kind of a, a father, you know, you at some point start being a fighter yourself, you know, because you can't dodge it. Yeah. So how did you get from Detroit to Hollywood? What was driving you behind? In the first time I came out, it was in uh, 1974. I was 19 and I came out with my bands uh, with their music on recorded, you know, cassettes. And I uh, was wanting to either sell them to a record label or uh, sell their songs to a music publishing house for a famous band to cover and to get publishing royalties. I'd learned about, um, I, I realized early on about the time I was 17, that cover bands only made money locally and that there was no future in bands that only played other bands music. So I pushed my bands to write songs, I wrote songs. And so the music I came out with when I was 19 uh, was original music for three different bands. Um, and two of them were, were rock and roll bands and one of them was a soul band, a horn band like Tower of Power or uh, Earth, Wind and Fire kind of band. And uh, unfortunately, uh, in 1974, my third day in LA, I got hit by a car in my car at the corner of Sunset and La Cienega. A drunk mm -hmm. woman rear-ended me so hard that she pushed my car all the way through the intersection. I was very lucky on one level. Um, but anyway, that, that sort of screwed up the trip because for the rest of the trip, I was on muscle relaxants and painkillers because uh, I was injured and I couldn't not... I didn't realize how badly I was injured. There were no seatbelts in 1974. And um, the, the first trip did not end up in any what I would call success. What ended up happening was when I went home, uh, we found out my heart was hurt. I'd had a uh, heart bruise and I ended up with what they call a myocarditis and a pericarditis. And I spent a year in bed. I had to spend a year in bed on heavy doses of steroids to get my heart from not blowing up, from not expanding to the point that it actually blew. And, um, you know, things happen when you're in bed for a year, you get pleurisy and pneumonia, other things happen. And I didn't walk for a year and I was on these steroids and the steroids bloat you and you're not moving, so you atrophy. So I looked like elephant man, you know, when I was on midway through my 20th year. And remember I said, I ran distance. Yeah. I had to learn to walk again and then to run again and then to run distance. But uh, I came back out in 79, five years later, uh, to speak at the Billboard Talent Forum as an expert on promoting concerts in uh, secondary and tertiary markets because I had gotten on my feet, finally realized I should go to college, I was 22, um, got my high school principal to agree that if I got all A's in a junior college for a semester that he would introduce me at Michigan State and at Michigan, which both had large concert companies, uh, give me a shot to get into those schools as an undergraduate. And I did that. I got the A's and I went to the meetings and the Michigan State person said, well, if you're really smart by your senior year, you can be the director of pop entertainment, doing concerts in a 12,000 seat field house, 6,500 seat ice arena, 3,600 seat auditorium. 
and you'll be the boss. You'll make the deals and you'll have a staff advisor. And I went to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and they said, in your senior year, you can be our, you know, you can, if you're really smart, you can be our, our preferred gopher. You can be our like top assistant and work for the staff who run the concert company. And I said, no, I'd rather be your competition. Mm-hmm. And so in 79, I came out uh, as a promoter of concerts because I was running these concerts in Michigan and, and I, I was on a panel with this billboard talent forum. And then I, uh, I had come out one other time to see my friend from one of the bands I managed, ended up being uh, in playing John Lennon in Beatlemania. And uh, I drove cross country just to drive cross country and then drove to San Francisco to see him in the show. And then uh, that's a guy named Marshall Crenshaw. Uh, a lot of people know who that is from old music stuff. And then in 1980, when I was almost, I was graduating from, from college, I did these two shows. One was called Eight a Day for the 80s with eight bands from around the world with the Ramones headlining on May 3rd, 1980. Oh, wow. It was their first headline <laughs> show outside of New York City. I mean, they were playing clubs around the mm-hmm. country, but this was a 12,000 seat arena and they were the headliner. It was, you know, the future. I was doing a future band. What, what ended up becoming like a uh, Lollapalooza, but, it, but nobody called anything like that yet. No one had done anything like that. Um, uh, and then um, in 1980, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My parents were giving me grief because I was 25 and just graduating from college late. And what was I gonna do? So I called up some law schools in LA and one of the law schools um, uh, told me that it wasn't orthodox to call and ask if there were any vacancies. <laughs> I said, well, I wasn't looking for a blessing. I'm looking for a, for, you know, a seat. Anyway, it turned out that I did uh, that law school, Southwestern University. Uh, they let me in if I could be there in four days with transcripts. Again, this is before fax machines. <laughs> yeah. I had to bring my transcripts with me and prove my grade point and the, the, the LSAT score, the test score. And they had a seat for me. So I filled out my application for law school in law school, in the first day of law school. And I uh, moved to LA August 10th, 1980. And that got me here. And then I thought I would be a music lawyer. I always thought that I would just you know, get a law degree to you know, the ticket punch on the road to credibility. And I would just you know, get on with it on the music side and then two things happened. Number one, I became curious about film and TV. There wasn't a lot of that in Detroit. There wasn't really like a movie might come into town, but you know, it was sort of an island to itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sam Raimi wasn't Sam Raimi yet. And you know, a lot of people weren't doing stuff and there were no tax incentives or anything like that. And then uh, the other thing that happened was my law school roommate and friend, uh, Philip Mull, uh, knew I was interested in his sister because I was. And he said, well, let's go to her acting class. Well, that's a good way for you to see her. She loves acting and go to the acting class. And while we were there, I said, uh, oh, this looks easy. And the teacher overheard me and said, oh, we have a guest who'd like to uh, perform for us. <laughs> and I guess he thought that would intimidate me, but you know, remember where I grew up. Right. So it's like, what, no one's throwing fists and, and I'm gonna get up and do an exercise that I already know I can do. I mean, it's easy. I'm seeing what people are doing with it. So I got up and I did the exercise and everybody was like, oh, that's good. And the teacher was like, oh, well, you're, you're actually good. Where did you train? And I just looked at him and smiled and said, in Detroit. And he let it stay at that. And I didn't, 
offer anything else. And, uh, but the, what happened from that was it whetted my appetite. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the, I, I finally realized that I didn't want to be a, a guy for hire by people who I might not respect, arguing things that they didn't, that I knew were not true. I just didn't think I was the right person to be a lawyer. I, I didn't. And my law school roommate went on to be the head of uh, Disney for some time. He, there were steps between, but he became the top lawyer at Disney for over a decade. Uh, and we're still friends many decades later. So that got me to California to law school. And then uh, uh, I left law school after almost two years of it to go act. And then I acted for seven years. And then I told you that I, I ended up working for two weeks for this person as an agent's assistant and then came back for six months and then bought half the company and then other things happened. Wow. Okay. So I don't think we should take like, I feel like the decisions that you made are very intuitive in a way. And maybe you didn't recognize that intuition was guiding you to make those decisions. But to me, it seems like that was a part of it. Do you feel that way looking back now? Well, here, I'll say this. Having used anger to overcome fear in the past, and that was the way out of, of getting past fear. What I'll also say is that there's a, a through line. There's a, a decision to pursue authenticity over um, periods of uncertainty, which means that I would rather be afraid of what's going to happen to me next than not doing something that I thought was worth my while in the time I've given in the body and life I have. Having been close to death on more than one occasion, I am very aware of how precious time is. And even if I'm wasting it, attempting to figure out what to do next, while I'm wasting it, I'm doing something else. Right. You know what I mean? Like when other, when other people say, well, why, why aren't you doing something more? It's like, well, when I was an agent, I worked seven days a week for 15 years. You know, it's like I work very hard when I work, when I when I'm focused on the choice I've made. But the authenticity in the seasons of a life, you know, pursuing authenticity, the goal, there's an old saying that you wish your friends that they should die all used up, that every part of them should have a chance to blossom, to have its day. So that at the end of a life, it's it's memories, not regrets. And uh while you know and I know that from living uh, and making choices, you do have regrets. There's things you wish you hadn't done or things you wished you'd avoided. You know, it's like I said, scars masquerading as wisdom. But on the same token, you've had a much more interesting life than you would have had if you played it safe. So, you know, what do you want? Do you want, uh, if, you know, I mean, I, I respect people who at 22 go to work at a company or in a fire department or whatever, and they work for 20 years, cops, whatever, and they retire or, or service people 20, 25 years, and they're 45 and they're, you know, they have a pension and they're done. And, you know, I owned a company, so I, you know, I could have been that guy too. Although I was always curious about new technologies and, you know, what was coming. And so I always invested in companies. And so, uh, at least so far, none of those companies have given me the opportunity to re- what I would call retire. Plus, I think I told you that I found out around uh, 24 months ago that I had a son who's now um, 
you know, who's now 18 and a half as a rower and just was in the rowing nationals in Sarasota, Florida. I went down to uh, there to Sarasota. That's my first trip since COVID to support him and to watch him race with my legs wrapped and uh, wearing a boot on one leg. And um, he's going to go to Prague to race next month in a four-man race after having been in the eight-man nationals. And he got into Syracuse University in part because of the rowing team. Uh, and he raised the money for himself for his scholarships and did all that stuff. And he's six foot four and a half, almost six five. And uh, the pictures of us are hilarious because I'm <laughs> five, six and a half on a good day. And you can see that he's my son. You can see we look alike, but it's still, it's like the guy towers over me. And, and you know, it's been really interesting getting to know him because he grew up in Sacramento and, and my existence in Detroit and his existence in Sacramento, nothing alike. Mm-hmm. He grew up in a nice suburb. He grew up, you know, he didn't grow up with an ideal parental situation, but he didn't grow up fighting, didn't grow up racing cars, didn't grow up, you know, he grew up, you know, and he, he, rowing for him though, and I, I've said this to him as we compared notes, is his way out of Sacramento the same way music was my way out of Detroit. Right. And, um, you know, it's taking him, you know, to places. He's going to go to Prague at 18 and a half. And the, the guy who owns the boat that they're racing in, who owns the boat company that makes these four-man boats, seen him race for five, for five or six races over the last two years. He's sponsoring my son to go to Prague. And the other three guys are all from very wealthy families. And their families will pay for them to go. Right. So and he's yeah. being sponsored. <laughs> based on his performance and I said dude I didn't get a passport till I was 37 because the way I grew up and you know I've been to 45 countries since then but you are having you know you're you're going to have you have a passport and you're going to Europe your first time at 18 and a half I have one piece of advice for you and he said what's that I said don't come back until you have to oh yeah I'll send you money I'll do whatever don't come back (laughs) That's the wisest thing you've ever said. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. When who gets to Europe at 18 and a half on his uh, own speed? Wow. So, and he's going to be knowing all these international rowers anyway. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of, you know, and, and they respect him. He respects them. He's a power rower. Anyway, um, it's, it's very interesting to look at life through the eyes of uh, another person who's your blood. Took us a while to figure that out. We're still figuring it out. We're not sure if it's a lifetime movie or a, you know horror <laughs> film, but we think it's going to be closer to a, a sweet a sweet film. And for me, it's it's a very different thing because you know all this wisdom that we talk about acquiring. You know, obviously, I've been a mentor to younger people. You know that, yeah. and um, that's all training for being a mentor to my own son, and seeing the difference in how irritated I get if he does something that I don't like whether to me or somewhere else versus with my other friends I kind of have patience for it and uh, tolerance for it because you know they're my friend or they're my young friend but this guy is now going to carry the baton on with my name and like you know he hasn't changed his name yet he asked me if I wanted him to I said that's something you'll tell me I'm not going to tell you but it's like okay now I have all these I don't know if I told you this, but I collected all the archives of my mother, father, and sister. Yeah. Okay. So I've collected this collection, which I've put in with the assistance of two different people 
put into chronological order, it's 47 volumes from 1934 to now. And it's, I call it the collected letters of an unknown family. And because that's what it is. But that's when people wrote letters and they hand wrote things. And, you know, it's so different now with email and text that there's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the kinds of writing that were done aren't done because no one does it anymore. You know, mm -hmm. why write out how you feel when you can use three emojis? You know, it's, oh yeah, it's different. It's a very different thing. A lost uh, art. Yeah. But uh, I, I stray from, from your line of questioning. What, what else? <laughs> That's totally fine. Um, but actually someone is seeing the potential in your son, similar to how they saw the potential in you. Yeah. Um, giving him a chance. And yeah. So that's pretty cool. That is very cool. Yeah. Because you said earlier about intuition. I couldn't intuit that a band was going to walk up to me and offer me their car. Right. You know, I didn't intuit that this woman walking up to me at the Rose Cafe when I was reading a play by myself there, and she walked up to me and said, what restaurant do you work at? Because I was reading a play. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be doing a one-man show at the time, and she came to the show, and she owned this little company that represented cameramen and production designers and costume designers. Right. And I couldn't predict that my friend would end up sleeping with her friend, who she usually gave the keys to when she went on vacation, to answer the phone. Right. So I couldn't predict that I would get the call at midnight that I've got to answer the phone for two weeks because it's my fault that her friend's not available because she's off with my friend. I couldn't predict that those two weeks would turn into a six-month contract, which would turn into me buying half the company at the end of that time because I'd signed 36 clients in three months and got them all in with a job. And that based on the terms of the deal that I made with her and her lawyer, they basically didn't want to pay me all the money they owed me. So I got half the company, right. half the money. And then three years later, I bought her out, built a big company and all that stuff. But all those things came to you because you chose to be rooted in yourself. Because if you weren't, then you wouldn't have been able to make those choices to attract those opportunities. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I'm sure many people will agree that there are periods where you're rooted in yourself and periods where you're just unrooted. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes those periods seem to be a waste of time. And sometimes they seem to be wallowing in the unknowingness. Yeah. And sometimes you need to wallow in the unknowingness to let things come to you, which you wouldn't attract if you were busy doing your busy thing because you know, your focus, you're looking in one direction, you can't see in other directions. Right. So it's an interesting thing. I've been rooted and I've been unrooted. And which one's better? I mean, they're both part of the game. Yeah, the contrast is necessary. Yeah. I mean, if you said to me, would you rather be focused, you know, all the days of your life? That makes sense as a yes, because when you're busy, the days pass quickly. And if you're doing something you feel is worthy, whether it's whatever your goals are, if you feel like it's, if you're able to execute on reaching the goal, then you can't, you know, be mad at yourself for how you used your day. But it's an interesting thing because burnout or knowing you're in the end of a cycle or knowing it's time to move on to the next thing, is always scary because there's always a risk. Mm -hmm. And the inability um, to jump or to fly is what makes people I think it was Thoreau who said the massive men live lives of quiet misery. Might have been Emerson. But that idea that, again, nobody owes you nothing. You owe yourself everything. So you're responsible. You know, that's the grounding, I think. You're responsible for your own growth and overcoming 
what happens to you. And um, as painful as it can be, it's better than sitting in the pain, doing nothing and being a victim. Because there's no percentage in being a victim. Nobody, nobody you care about gets better from you being a victim and you don't get better. So no matter how hard it is, no matter how much you limp, you have to get back up and do the next thing so that you used your time well on earth because you know it's a second we're here a, a split second <laughs> yeah when i got covid when i got covid in december you know i woke up i couldn't get a breath i drove to urgent care urgent care put the oximeter on my finger said it's below 90 congratulations you get a free ride not a free ride but you get an ambulance ride to uh cedars covid unit cedars then put me in emergency uh at cedars and then put me in a covid unit this is New Year's Eve. Uh, so I spent New Year's Eve with by myself in a COVID unit by myself with people in hazmat suits coming to talk to me or give me tests or inject me with things. And then I spent five days there and I got really lucky because by day three, the medicines were completely reversing what was happening except for the embolisms. And I said, they said, you're doing really well. We're taking your oxygen down, you know, don't think about ventilators. You're not going to go there. You're going to get out of here. And I was like, well, what's the difference? Why am I the lucky guy? I mean, my next door neighbor was Larry King, who passed away while he was there. And um, they said, well, probably because you caught it so early. You yeah. said you had trouble drawing a breath and drove to urgent care. Most people wait a day or wait two days to see if they can tough it out or take some aspirin or whatever they do. Anyway, but you know, while you're in there, Everybody is extremely serious in a COVID unit. There's no jokes. No one's, no one's, they're not unfriendly, but they're, you know, everybody's aware that, that you may not make it. You know, nobody wants to get close to someone who may get sicker instead of better. Mm -hmm. And you have that moment, you go, well, have I used my life well? Have I been smart about the choices I've made? Have I picked the best company of, of those around me? You know, what have I done? And, um, the brain fog and the exhaustion that comes along with the COVID, that's sort of a long-term thing that, that lasts after you're well, as they say, is um, uh, debilitating, but it's also, you can use it to make yourself more focused, to just refuse, you know, you fall asleep in the chair, okay, but when you get up, you respond to 10 emails, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know, it's like, it's like counterpunching. It's like, you know, if you get jumped, you get hit, you got to hit back immediately. You can't, you can't try to defend. You have to attack back because you got surprised, and that person has the advantage, and you have to take back, make things, you know, more standing up. Mm -hmm. You can't be pushed over on your back. So the COVID was like that, and um, uh, and of course, the other thing that that you find over life is that if you've been at all social, at all in the world, is that people will show up, and and. Uh, more than once I've found out it's not the usual people who show up. It's not necessarily who you expect to, mm -hmm. but some other people who all of a sudden they say, Wednesdays is my day. You say, what does that mean? And they say, I'm going to bring you lunch every Wednesday until you tell me you don't need it. And someone brings you six lunches on Wednesdays. And you're like, Jesus Christ, how did I get that? How did, how did I yeah. earn that? Well, and it's like, well, yeah. it's their kindness mixed with your need. You know, but it's like, you know, and then other people who are, you know, closer friends say, hey, if you need anything, call me. 
It's like, I'm not going to call you. I don't call <laughs> people when I need things because, you know, I wasn't raised, you know, wham, 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 I need this. Yeah. You know, I was raised, go out and get it. So the friends that say, hey, I'm going to come over and do something, or they send a gift basket that's full of fruit or, you know, stuff you can use, you know, it's like, it's really interesting to see how people show up. And of course, that reminds me how I show up for the people I say I care about, you know, with uh, when, when they go down, when they have mm -hmm. issues. Well, you obviously do show up because because I've been in places with you and I've seen how people are drawn to you and how much they love you. You know, everyone like within the proximity, when, wherever you go. Um, and so that is a testament to you. And thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you get what you give or possibly you get what you give. So but if you're not going to give, don't expect to get. Yeah. Uh, and and the other thing there is, um, uh, again, back to my dad. My dad uh, would laugh and say that he was colorblind. And he grew up in New York City around all sorts of people. And in the war, he ended up with black troops. And I didn't, I don't think I mentioned this, but he ended up liberating concentration camps uh, in Germany, two, two resort towns that had concentration camps. That no one knew about um, because but they had ovens they were killing people and um, my dad uh, basically reminded me that the, my mom and dad were introduced by a gay guy and my dad had had black troops and had saved his life and he'd saved their lives so he said you really can't be prejudiced you, you know you can't you can't hate people based on their color or their preference or whatever and because you know you wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for this gay guy and um you wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the black troops that supported me and made sure i didn't get killed when we went into crazy ass situations so um you know my mom had prejudices against germans particularly because she was blonde and blue-eyed and everybody would tell her the anti-semitic jokes growing up because they thought she was a good german girl so you know she she always knew um who hated the Jews kind of thing, but she was a blonde, blue-eyed Jew. So it was very interesting. No one ever picked up on that, you know? So she, she had, um, and maybe my anger is partially hers, not his, because his, his was get through the day, you know, on to the next thing. His was very methodical. Boxers don't get angry, they get results, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, but you know, it's great to have the artist mom and the business guy dad, because you see these two different worlds, you know, you see your mom making art and then you're like, okay, and then you see your dad go to the office every day. And it was funny because, you know, with the music and the bands, I would come in sometimes more than sometimes at six in the morning. Cause we were out all night. Cause you know, it's what musicians do and their managers do with them. And my dad would say, you want eggs? And so he'd be getting up and I'd be coming in and we'd have breakfast <laughs> together at 6 AM before he went to the office. And I was coming back from the office, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, I mean, in a sense, those were the best times because no one else was around. And uh, he asked what happened that night and I could tell him. And I asked him what was going on in the office. And sometimes he would tell me. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, the impressions that get left on you from how you came up, you know? Yeah. 
I think you are a good combination of artist businessman. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I hope that the artist obviously is the vulnerability. Yes. And the businessman hopefully is the integrity. So vulnerability and integrity. I mean, you really can't be kind to other people if you're not kind to yourself and you can't be strong for other people if you're not strong for yourself. So, you know, it, it's great to want to help people, but when you're in a weak position, it's very hard to do so. Yeah. You have to pull yourself up first. And then if, if your choice is kindness after you've done that, then you can do it for others. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the season in your life, again, you can do it for others on a big scale. You know, you can help charities, you can help communities, you can do all mm -hmm. sorts of stuff. Yeah, it contributes to a resiliency. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I got to um, uh, invest uh, at a point in time, there was a company that was a startup that wanted to be the first online film market. And it was called Real Play and they raised 7 million bucks and I was a advisor and I put in money. And the guy that was hired to be the in-house lawyer um, we were in strategy meetings together for three years. Anyway, that company failed in 2001. But the, the lawyer called me up in 2003 and said, let's go to lunch. We went to lunch, reminiscing. And he said, I'm going to start a new company. I'd like you to be my first advisor. And I said, um, you know, okay, he's an entertainment lawyer. So whatever he was going to do, I assumed was entertainment. And I just said, sure, I'd be happy to be your first advisor. You like me, I like you. We like the way each other think. And we think differently enough that we cover different ground, that we widen our perspectives. And um, he came to me, he said, all right, I'm gonna work on this for nine more months and I'll come back to you, which is exactly what he did. And in 04, um, I also invested at that time. I just sold my company. I invested in his new company. And, but I'd, I'd said I wouldn't be an advisor because his new company was called Transplant Connect. And it was a software design to help locate, acquire, and deliver human organs for transplant. And I said, I'm not, I'm, I add no value to this. That's my best advice as your advisor, is get rid of me because I, I'm useless. I don't know anybody in the medical profession. I don't know, there's no part of it I know. I don't know any part of the chain. I don't know hospitals. I don't know doctors. I'm useless here. And he said, no, 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 you're, 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 that's not true. Your way of thinking, your business strategy, blah, blah, blah. And I, I said, no, and I went away. And then six months after I sold the company, my sister, my only sibling passed away of cancer. And she donated her, her body to science, to the Anatomical Gift Society, which came and got her body. And they take those bodies and they dissect them in universities and stuff. And I called my friend up and said, look, I told you I was gonna invest, which I'm doing, but I'm also gonna, uh, well, I said, that's all I'm going to do. And then he said, well, I'd still like you to be an advisor. And I said, well, I told, we had that discussion. And he said, well, I still think you have value. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what. If you'll put a plaque up that says, in honor of Erica Bressler for my investment, my sister's name, on the wall of your offices. And if you will, um, I'll be an advisor for three years. And he said, why three years? And I said, because in three years, you will fail, or in three years, you'll be so successful, you'll be trying to think of a nice reason to get rid of me. You'll be trying to figure out how to get one of the more MD uh, transplant specialists onto your board of advisors and rid of me. And that's what happened. So now that company is 16 years old, or 14 years old, 16 years old, and we're still private, 
we never raised more than the seed round because the company went into profit doing business with hospitals. My friend, the lawyer, became a very good CEO and has run the company very well. Um, and every year there's a black tie dinner, you know, someplace. And every year someone comes up to me and hugs me and says, you're one of the original guys and you saved my uncle's life. You saved my brother's life. And it's like, I didn't do anything. I just wrote a check and advised the CEO. And they're like, yeah, but you helped make this happen. And so, you know, so that is an ongoing thing that I got to do because I was in the right place at the right time and was in the right place financially to be of use. But it was all, you know, again, perfect storm. I've, there's been times where great things have come near me and I haven't been in a position to help. So, you know, seasons in a life, right? When you yeah. can show up, you do. And when you can't, you remember, write yourself a note and keep things in mind for later. Yeah, there's a certain synchronicity to how things operate. Yep. The, yep. What else yeah. can I tell you? Um, so you seem to, when I, when I talk about resiliency, you seem to be very dedicated and have a drive to do certain things such as all of the roles that you've played as Berg and going to Esalen, what is it, like 40 times? Correct. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little times. bit about that experience of Esalen and how that transformed you? Uh, well, I can definitely tell you that the, the reason I went to Esalen the first time was that a very beautiful woman who I was interested in, who wasn't interested in me, told me that she felt safer naked at Esalen in the hot springs than dressed in LA. And I laughed and said, that's bullshit. And she said, no, that's true. You just don't know because you're like this Detroit guy who thinks he's tough, who's whatever. And this was in 1989. And I think I still did think I was pretty tough in 1989 because I was you know, starting a business and building a business. And when I had to be tough, I was. And, uh, but she said, well, you'll never go there. And I was like, what? And see beautiful naked women in a hot spring? I'm never going to go there? Or are you wrong about that? So uh, I went up for one night and I was at that time in my life for reasons that don't matter. I, I always wore two knives. I had a hidden knife and I had a knife that you could see. And the idea was um, defensive just to, you know, in case I ever needed them, I had them. Anyway, so I go up to Esalen. I book one night there on my way up to San Francisco to see my sister who lived up there at the time. And um, I get there early and they said, well, we can't give you your room till four, but you can go to the baths now. Here's a towel. And the baths are that, are that way. So I go down to the baths. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, I see a bunch of naked people, men and women, and everybody's fine and relaxed. And I go into the bathhouse where you take your clothes off and it's shared. It's, you know, both people, men and women are there. And I take off my clothes and I hide my knives. And I'm like, this is weird. And I put my clothes near the entrance of the bathhouse to the bath so that if I have a problem, I can get to them because that's how paranoid I am. And um, people are friendly. People are, you know, people are talking to each other, just standing there naked. And I've never done that, you know, with people I don't know before. And I'm an adult already, but I've never been in that environment. I didn't grow up in a nudist camp or around any of that. But anyway, so I went out to the baths. The baths are on the mountain facing the ocean. It's gorgeous you know, your blood pressure goes down no matter what, you're, you're sitting there in the hot springs. And then put my clothes back on, went up to my room, went to dinner. 
Um, actually, there's a whole long story. I met the guy who was the head of the Hubble telescope program the first time I was in the bath. And the Hubble had gone wrong after it had been launched. This is before they sent up a group of people that fixed the Hubble. And now the Hubble has been the most important telescope in the sky for over 30 years. But at that time, what he told me was that the base was built a quarter inch off. From So none of the mirrors, no, nothing worked. Because when signals were sent, they missed by a quarter inch. And that's what they went up and fixed. Anyway, that was a fascinating person to meet. And, I was, and I've met amazing people at Aslan pretty much every time I've been there. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, I realized that no one was trying to sell me anything. That there was no one saying this is the way to be. Or, you know, none of the S stuff or Life Spring or Sprint or Summit or any of that. And on, I left my sister's place one day early to try it again. I came down one day early and booked a room and board night again, just to make sure. And then I just started coming up there. And um, I've taken like, you know, 40 workshops of different kinds. I take a massage workshop where they teach you to give massage. I took workshops in poetry. I took a writing workshop uh, with a uh, uh, famous poet, Garrison Keillor, not Garrison Keillor, the other Garrison, uh, but American poet. Um, and just, I met crazy ass people up there that I would never meet in my regular life. Um, uh, and stayed friends. I mean, the first person that ever massaged me there, Ellen Watson, who owns a company called Moving Ventures. Um, I'm still friends with her from 1989 to now. Um, a lot of people that I met from other parts of the world, I've gone to visit them where they live. But I met them at Esalen and Big Sur. Gone to weddings from people I met there. One of the founder's sons, Richard Price was the founder with Michael Murphy. The son, David Price, who's a musician and an actor who lives in Poland, uh, in 2019 in October, he joined me for a trip through London, Poland, London, Warsaw, Berlin, and a place called Torin, where there was a, a cinematography film festival. We hung out mm -hmm. for almost a month. Uh, and there's a guy I met at Esalen in 96, and here we are in 2019, mm -hmm. you know. So, I mean, this is a brother from another mother. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. Esalen changed me because it made me understand um, potential uh, on the spiritual side, on the breath side, on the physical side, you know, ways to overcome injuries. Uh, and just looking at all sorts of alternative means of getting to the same place that the Western world has very um, uh, strict ideas, which don't fit everybody. And so if you don't fit that Western idea, then you're left out with fend for yourself. I mean, people who have celiac disease, who have all these leaky gut stuff, you know, I mean, it took, it took patience for years. And I met people at Esalen who did this, who were giving themselves fecal transplants before any medical doctor, any Western doctor, would test it and then they tested it and found out it worked. Mm. But it was people intuitively understanding their own bodies enough to understand what they needed to work on their microbiome. You know, it's like that was at Esalen. That wasn't at Stanford or at yeah. John Hopkins or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Esalen became a place sort of like my true temple where no one told you what to believe, but all sorts of beliefs were available to be examined either on a shallow level or on a deeper level, if it spoke to you. And how hard is it 
to find a place like that. It started in 62. Now they've gone through all sorts of situations with roads being washed out and pandemics and stuff. And I know that some of the people from Silicon Valley have been the big generous donors to keep it going. And I know it's gotten more expensive. I was up there for the Inspirational Film Festival for my birthday in May of um, 2019. I haven't been back since, pandemic, other stuff. Yeah. But um, even if I never go back there again, those 40 trips absolutely inform who I am and, and absolutely helped me with being less uh, invulnerable and much more vulnerable because I understood there was no percentage in being a hard ass. There's just, you know, it's a defense. It's even if it seems aggressive, it's just a defense of fear of being open and, and being open has all sorts of advantages that stay growing over time that you don't have to, there is no end to it. You know, you just learn more or understand more or see more, or as Byron Katie says, turn around fast enough to catch yourself. Yeah. And, and, you know, the more you can work on yourself, the better you are for anybody you say you care about outside of yourself and the better it is for the time you spent here being sentient. It allowed you to put your knives down. Yeah. Yeah. I still have one, <laughs> but I don't carry it much. Um, the, uh, what was the other thing you asked me about? Not Esalen. I asked you. Oh, about, the birds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was a kid, I got in a, I got in a lot of fights. And when I was still in the little part of my life where I was the football, uh, some bigger guys came up to me once in the winter and uh, told me that I killed everybody on uh, the Titanic. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Iceberg did that. And they said, Iceberg, Spielberg, you're all the same. And they were basically anti-Semites and they had learned that from their parents or wherever they'd learned that. And they kicked the shit out of me. They left me in the snow bleeding. And... Um, you know, Iceberg, Steinberg, I never forgot that. And it was a, a wound, you know, I mean, it was, it was uh, an understanding for the first time. It was my first experience with physical anti-Semitism, certainly at the wrong end of it, you know, getting my ass kicked. And um, I never forgot them, either one of them. And that's another story. But I, uh, that, you know, that's one of the things of the many that made me start exercising and wanting to learn how to fight. And then um, many, many years later, I was in a movie called The Usual Suspects and they cast me as a character named Saul Berg. And at the same time, I exec produced a movie called Dinner and Driving where I was cast as a character and we made a joke about it that I would be the brother of Saul Berg because Saul Berg in The Usual Suspects is a, jewelry, is a jewelry dealer who's actually a drug dealer. And, that on me and the other brother was selling uh, uh wedding rings on pico so it was like pico Avenue. so it was like the bad brother was driving a mercedes and had bodyguards but he gets killed the good brother has a much more modest life but at least he, he stays in business and uh so those two movies came out at the same time and i was being an agent at that time in my company montana artists and i i basically decided that from then on I would only accept roles, not, I would never audition because I didn't need to. Mm -hmm. I was running my business and that the character's last name had to be Berg. And that was a private joke to myself because people would say, why do you only play characters named Berg? And I'd say, oh, it's just a fun thing. I'm going for a world record. 
of the most characters <laughs> played with the same name. And it was, I mean, that's true now. I've played 26 characters named Berg in film and television. I'm pretty sure I have the world record. I'm pretty sure. You know, I haven't, I haven't looked at it. I haven't reached out to Ripley's or whoever you reach out to. Um, but uh, the goal was to remind myself Spielberg, Iceberg, they're all the same, they're all me. And that is a positive yeah. instead of a wound. So how do you overcome a wound and you make something, you know, it's like doing a tattoo on a scar. It's like, you know, that was for me, my way out. And so the Berg thing probably caused me to lose some roles because <laughs> I was adamant. Yeah. You know? Well, we're not calling the character Berg. Well, then I'm not doing the character. Well, we have other actors. Thank you very much. You know, I was like, okay, bye. But, um, you know, I mean, that's for over 20 years I've been doing that. And uh, will I continue to do that in the future? Well, I have a new manager now who I like, who is uh, not putting me up for characters based on the bird name. And I'm not asking in those situations uh, to do that. But, you know, usually what happens is if I get cast in something, I will on set ask the people that matter if it'd be a problem uh, to change the call sheet and the change to the character name in the script. And, you know, the last time I did that a few years back was with uh, a very nice guy, a very smart guy named David Shore, who was making a pilot with um, uh, the guy from Breaking Bad. Um, I can't remember his name right now. And a very prolific writer, producer, director. And the two of them were making this pilot together called Battle Creek. And it was about Battle Creek, Michigan. And I got cast with one name. And I went through the you know costume and stuff and everything, and I came to set, and I had signed my my uh, card when I got there at six thirty a.m. that I was uh, whatever Leonard whatever his name was, and um, everybody knew that I was wanting to be a bird, but it was a CBS pilot, right. and I was lucky to be in a CBS pilot because that gets you by, you know. There's a certain thing where they're like, well, has he ever done network, mm -hmm. and how recently. Yeah. And to be in a CBS pilot for these good producers, it was kind of like, okay, that's great. And then uh, when I got on set, they called me on the set early. I wasn't supposed to be on set till 9.30, but they changed things around. And so I literally went from makeup, as I was walking to breakfast, them pulling me back and saying, you're on set now. And they walked me through, didn't introduce me to anybody, put me down on the set with the two lead actors, didn't introduce me to them. And basically a voice from the other room where all the video equipment was said, what's your first line? And I said, I sucked the tit of an astronaut. And the voice said, what? And the two leads looked at me like, what? Although one of them, Dean Winters looked at me and smiled. And I said, I'm so sorry the TV was on, which was my actual first line in the scene. But it was me saying, you fuckers, you didn't even say good morning. <laughs> what am I, is, am I gonna be the excuse for you having troubles today? No, I'm not. I'm a pro. Whatever mm -hmm. you throw at me, I'll handle. So you want to go with me? Okay, I suck the tit of an astronaut. You're doing a sound check. Camera isn't even at speed. So don't, you know. So, so then everybody was like, okay. And the director came out after we did two takes and said, all right, you're, you can do improv, right? And I said, absolutely. And he said, bring him a coffee cake. And uh, he said, at the end of the scene, sell them the coffee cake. You, you don't get detectives in your apartment. Usually, this is the most interesting day you're going to have for a long time. Do whatever you can to keep them there. And so I was selling him the coffee cake, saying, you know, I, I know you guys are on duty. This is uh, my mom's recipe. 
My mom was a big fan of rum and uh, well, you know, even so this is still a coffee cake, but I was basically saying it's full of rum. Can I cut you a slice? And everybody laughed and they liked it. And um, David Shore came out and said, go back and sign your paperwork again. I said, why? He said, just go back and do it. We, we, we made a mistake, we changed something. I went back and my paperwork, you know, it's all said bird. Mm -hmm. so they made a decision on set to give me that thing I want. I mean, who does that? You know, I wasn't yeah. the lead, I wasn't right. a star. Mm -hmm. So it was very nice of him. And I, you know, you don't forget people who do things like that. So that's the Berg story. That's the, the origin of the Bergs, Iceberg, Spielberg, which one are you? We don't care. And uh, me turning a wound into a tattoo or into a something beautiful because yeah. you know every time you act and i know you know this whitney every time you get to act it's a blessing because you're getting to play as an adult yeah and you're getting to bring another life whether it's never been or whether it's someone's remembering another person they knew growing up or whatever the yeah. writer that you're getting to bring character you're, you're bringing other aspects to life yeah you're you're able to you're getting a chance to tell the truth yeah <laughs> yeah Exactly. So it goes in. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. You know, there's a, I remember an actor saying to me, well, don't accept any roles where you're in bed dying. And I said, why is that? He said, well, as soon as they see you in that, that's the only thing they'll call you in for. Like, okay, good to know. But I really enjoy it. And I, I'm not um, beholden to it in the sense, you know, when people say, if there's anything you can do besides act, go do that. Yeah. And I understand that. I, I prefer to think of if there's anything else you can do, do that and also act because act when you get to act. And, you know, do other things that you need to do to pay your bills or to find your bliss, you know, do it all because this is the moment. And, and you know, right. your mark, you know, they say that you're not really dead until no one remembers you. So, you know, live a life worth remembering so that you as it says in that great book, The Way of All Flesh. So it does uh, somehow brighten the lives of those people that are coming after us. Yeah, and it seems that things come more easily when you don't cling on to them so tightly. Right. Yeah. At least we believe that. Yeah. I believe yeah. that. I believe that too. Oh. Allowing. All right, this has been fantastic. I think we've, got, we've covered a lot of ground and we can probably talk for hours and hours more. True. Definitely. Thank you so much for doing this. I have one last question for you. Go. If your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? Well, you know, it's interesting. My inner voice would say to the world, if it was talking to the world, it would say, the army was right. Be all you can be. You know that expression? Mm -hmm. Fully expressed life. If it was talking about me, it would be, thanks for the opportunity to play with you. It was me talking, if my inner voice talking to the world about me, it would be, you know, uh, whether we, we've made love, whether we've fought, whether we've uh, done business, whether we've uh, done other uh, projects together, you know, just uh, thanks for the opportunity to deal, to, to play. Because if you can't get to the table to play, then you're always wishing you had. Fantastic. If people would like to find you and your work, where can we guide them to as an actor or investor well, as an actor, or a lot of the theater work you can't find obviously but the you know imdb my name 
for acting work. There's a reel on there that's that's from five years ago, but it's some work enough to get a sense. Most people compliment me on that reel. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't done a newer reel, bad on me, but maybe I will, we'll see. In terms of business stuff, uh, again, back to a, a website, LinkedIn has been where I've put most of the stuff I've worked on in some detail, although I've made it a little more concise in uh, this year. I, I got rid of a lot of stuff that just was redundant to me. And um, so LinkedIn for business side, IMDb for artist side. And if they actually want to contact me, best is through LinkedIn because I don't respond to people on Facebook and stuff if I don't know them or Instagram. Just, you know, right. I, don't, I don't know people. So if it's someone new and they want to approach me, it's best on LinkedIn with the reason why. There you go. Thanks for having Thank you so much for joining me this week. If you're listening and you like what you hear, please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet. And also, if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time... Stay tuned in to you.